Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Letter Roll Maxi series discussing Simon Reynolds' book, Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Letter Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ryan discuss the 90s post-rave, post-rock, post-rap artsy scenes like Ilbian in New York, Drill and Bass in the UK, and Germany's digital hardcore scene. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to let it roll, or should I say techno roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox. I'm joined once again by Ryan Harkness to continue our discussion of Simon Reynolds' Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture. And Ryan, we have worked our way through most all the really cool stuff, and now we're into the sort of afterthoughtish stuff. Today we're going to talk about two chapters, one, digital psychedelia, sampling and the soundscape, and two, fuck art. Uh, excuse me, fuck dance, let's art. I can't believe I screwed that up. The post-rave <laughs> experimental fringe. I mean, it's too artsy for me, Ryan. What am I supposed to do? I I'm mean, we're really punk. we're really getting into the aesthetics of everything now. We've gotten through the hard history of musical genres, and now we're moving into some of the less tangible elements where Simon Reynolds really gets to go deep into some of his uh, kind of post-grad thoughts on dance music and, uh, you know, gets to use a lot of his hoity-toity music review like uh, connections and ideas and thoughts and 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 writing skills to to really uh, chew some meat on this one. It's true. It's true. The placement of the sample delia chapter, which I guess we should talk about. What is sample delia? <laughs> Since I think it's a, a Reynolds original coinage, but I thought the placement of that one was kind of interesting. Like I guess he didn't want to just do because there's another chapter that's sort of like the religious aspects of rave or something that's coming up. Let's see. That one's called in our angelhood is coming up next rave culture, a spiritual revolution. Then you've got the outro, which the outro does get back into genres. talks about speed garage, nineties house and big beat. Um, And then there's going to be trance and two steps beyond, which talks about UK garage and two steps. So there's some things he added in the later editions as well, but he's definitely trying to get to the end here. Um, yeah, trying to wrap wrap it up with a couple of uh, uh, lo- lo- looking at some of the less tangible elements that are kind of past the music a little bit while still kind of bringing it out focused around the music. Yeah, although the art chapter is definitely about a movement that had a specific place in time. So that that's a very late 90s um, thing that he that has multiple names. Um, that uh, let's see, what are, what are some of the names he discusses? Eclectico, Ilbient, or Freestyle, which yeah, is yeah, uh, I know it for us it was called IDM, intelligent dance music, and it's ironic because it's not it's not dance music, and it's some of the least mature stuff that there is because obviously when you're talking about art as music, these guys go ahead and and kind of uh, get a bit silly with things just to just to show that that's an, an element of of art as opposed to crowd pleasing music is to just make weird songs about mashed potatoes. <laughs> or 
other topics they're free to choose free to choose but let's get into sample delia now and so he he said the sampler is not necessarily the most important instrument in the techno producers arsenal that many of them use strictly analog synths and old school drum machines etc but because sampling breaks with traditional ideas of musicality that's why he's using sample delia as a general rubric for rave music's revolutionary implications so this is one of those classic sort of 90s essays that gets into the whole postmodern view of of sampling as the collage and recontextualizing and and i'm not trying to denigrate what reynolds is saying i think he has a lot of good points here um, yeah, I think maybe if you wanted to have like a more accurate name it would maybe be Da Delica, like digital audio workstation. Like that's kind of what he's trying to wrap everything up in here is that we're no longer playing music live and recording it. Now we've got it all kind of taking taking chunks of it and putting it on a screen and dragging it around with a mouse. And that's kind of the new the new thing that that really kind of separates electronic music from from your more acute acoustic varieties. Yeah, and he's somebody around my age maybe a little older who remembers back when the sampler was a discrete piece of equipment that was separate from your computers and and in the era he's talking about the sampler had already been brought into the digital workstation and so he's already a little bit retro but i still think seeing the sampler as a unique distinct thing um has some value and of course We've got to go back. He says that the age of sample Delia really began when cheaper machines like the Emu emulator and the Insonic Mirage fell into the hands of rap producers. So he's kind of dismissing the era when people like Peter Gabriel and Kate Bush got these massive, super expensive Fairlight uh, samplers that were, you know, into the hundreds of thousands of dollars to purchase, I believe, or at least the five figures. I mean, these things were ridiculously expensive and they could only do tiny, tiny little minuscule samples. So classic case of um, whatever that dude's name is that said that the price of transistors would keep dropping every 18 months. You know, like what was a $100,000 machine quickly became a $10,000 machine, then became a $2,000 machine. And soon after that, it fell into the hands of people who actually were making music for people to dance to. And that's when stuff got crazy. And of course, he goes back to what he's now calling the DJ record fad of 1987 to 1988. This is when people like Mars, Express, Cold Cut, Bomb the Bass. And Curtis Mantronic. Yes, yes. And we will be talking about Curtis Mantronic and hearing some Mantronics very, very soon. Um, but there's just this period when it's so novel, people are making hit records just by taking bites off of other records and putting them together and and keeping a house beat to it. So it's kind of, it's not hip house, but it's kind of a collision of hip hop and house music. Is that fair? Oh yeah, and I mean, uh, like the 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 complete appropriation and theft of, of of music goes on for quite a while. The KLF obviously had that famous book explaining how to make a number one hit record, and they basically said steal elements from three famous uh, chart topping topping tracks and make your own chart chart topping track with those elements. And the number of people that were doing this uh, was extremely high, uh, be it through just sampledelia. Uh, like taking the sam taking samples and lifting them whole a whole cloth out and putting them into your own track and just maybe putting a little bit of a rap or a new beat over it, or you know being a little bit more discreet about it, but definitely still stealing that bass line, and definitely still stealing that like vocal hook. 
Like so many people were doing it. Lenny D and uh, Frankie Bones, those guys started their careers basically stealing stealing stuff from all the Detroit guys, all the Europe guys, and re-releasing them in their own kind of breakbeat record format. And we can't forget this is also the era of MC Hammer and Vanilla Ice, who were just cold swiping hooks from Rick James and Queen and David Bowie and, and making hit records. So there was something in the air, or I guess it was just cheap technology was available, and, and a lot of people... You know, monkey see, monkey do. Humans are going to imitate. We see somebody making uh, a hit record with a sampler, and somebody else is going to say, I'm going to get a sampler. And KLF even wrote a book about it. And they kept going quite a bit later than everybody else, although they went through some changes. And that's one of the things he talks about is that um, sampling quickly became more subtle and less about gleeful theft and blatant appropriation and more about changing the sounds and using them as the basis for new sounds, which kind of turns the sampler into a synthesizer. And then he gets into this whole postmodernist versus modernist thing where you can, you know, it's postmodernist to make collages of recognizable sounds, but it's modernist, which is before postmodernist, obviously, that um, recreates what they call the music concrete recreation where uh, you sample a sound, then you change it so much it's like a new sound. But let's go ahead and hear our first little snippet of music. And this is Mantronics, King of the Beats. And tell us why you picked this one. I mean, if you want to talk about sample culture and uh, and beats and pieces style uh, assembly, uh, King of the Beats is one of those tracks where so many of the, the samples that he picked out were so great that, you know, 50 other songs spawned out of sampling that one. And it's that layering that's this track samples this and then another track samples that. And it just goes all the way down the line until you have these infamous riffs and breakbeats and 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 things like that so i thought king of the beats by mantronics is the perfect uh expression of that vibe well chosen and well said mantronics king of the beats was Mantronics, King of the Beats, is our exemplar of the uh, what Reynolds is now calling the DJ record fad of 87, 88, although I think Mantronics only come out in 86. Is that? Yeah, he was kind of earlier. Yeah, yeah. He's kind of on the edge of electro as well. So Mantronics is one of those guys who did not get his due all through the 90s. And thanks to the dance music scene and and sort of the the neo-electro revival of the 2000s, I think I think Mantronics is more recognized now than they were back in my day. So that's good. Um, then he gets into this whole riff about the body electric, and he talks about how techno can be played live, but it's rarely born in real time, that it's um, made in the studio, that it's created uh, in these um, sequencers or samplers or what was it you called it? The digital desktop something? Uh, digital audio workstations. There you go. Digital the audio DAWs. workstation. The DAWs. Yes. But then he points out that this is not as big a break with rock music history as it might seem, even though rock music is based on, you know, four dudes in a room with guitars, bass and drums and sometimes women, etc. 
but that Rock's interest in phonography, which is the art of recording, that was a new word for me, is a big factor in what separates it from folk and jazz and their interest in capturing the live performance. Folk is focused on the song, jazz is focused on the improvisation, but they're both focused on that live performance and just use recording generally as a way to capture it. Although Miles Davis and Bitches Brew and that whole period, he was doing tape collages and definitely way into phonography at that point. And I think that's really what separates the pure jazz from the fusion jazz, Miles Davis, is, is once he starts messing with the tapes, then, you, then you're well into fusion. And I think that's a good point that I hadn't really thought about before, but that rock is a phonographic art. Then he gets into this whole thing calling Sample Delia zombie music, that it's dead sound reanimated. The archivalism of cyberculture is hatching monstrous hybrids. Wow. Yeah, it's an interesting kind of mental uh, experiment to kind of contemplate as to just how how there's so, there's such a disconnect between the human hand and the final product. And when you're dealing so much with computers and so much with with you know recordings that are then bastardized and stuff like that, it, it is kind of a a fun thing to contemplate as to how much we're warping this stuff beyond what it was originally created to be. And how much life uh, is still in it, you know? If, if Is it just becoming more and more removed from its original vivacity, or is it uh, being infused with new life? And he says that, you know, the last 80, and now it's 120 years of recorded sound, is being de decontextualized, deracinated, and utterly etherealized. So removed from the real world and moved into the ether. Um, yeah, you know, and then he gets into the real grad school, stuff and he starts quoting this guy Jacques Attali uh, is that reasonably correct uh, your guess is as good as mine I'd say Jacques <laughs> At Attali there you go see that's sort of the Canadian exposure to French comes in but he had a book Noise the Political Economy of Music from 1977 and he says that each stage of music making is a foretoken of future social transformations now this is a fun theory I love this kind of stuff I found it never really holds up to close scrutiny but it is fun as heck to think of kind of like astrology or sociology um, that music began as sacred noise accompaniment to various religious rituals then it enters an era he calls representation when it becomes the preserve of specialists you know Beethoven people like that it takes place at special events with a socially stabilizing function then it moves into the repetition era and that's where you've got the mass mediated circulation of music commodities you know whether it's the lp or the cd or the iphone uh, and mp3s then he's uh Attlee was prophesizing that we would reach a stage he called composition which means music produced by each individual for himself for pleasure outside of meaning usage and exchange which is pretty close to the whole mashup genre. I mean, I've made mashups. I'm sure you've made mashups. Everybody's yeah. made mashups. I mean, every single iPad comes with GarageBand, right? It's uh, everybody can be a musician. Everybody can mess around with it. Everybody can do a whole bunch of stuff with with everything. So kids are all editing and creating new hits on their phone, just uploading uh, existing songs to TikTok, and that in itself is its own form of remix. Yep, yep. TikTok, I would say, is. Um, a little bit disappointing. Like if you were reading this in the 90s and imagining the future, I think you would have imagined something that was a little bit more freestyle and less formulaic than TikTok is because TikTok makes it so easy, but there's, you know, it's a relatively small box you're in. But nonetheless, 
I think Adelaide has been um, confirmed as being pretty prescient, wouldn't you say? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's uh, it's definitely one of those ones that when you when you take that shot in 1998 and then you come forward to 2021, you're like, got him. Yep, and, and that was Reynolds talking about Adelaide, who said this in 1977. So, mm. you know, it, that was back when comic books were 25 cents, I'm telling you. So that, that was, them was the days. And Reynolds does point out that uh, lo-fi rock and, and uh, techno were coming pretty close to the composition because they were making the records at home, they were releasing on tiny independent labels, and a high ratio of the listeners were either in bands, in the case of the lo-fi indie rock, or were DJs, in the case of EDM. So, you know, uh, precursor of this mass composition era, which we've got now with TikTok. Yeah, he hasn't even realized how granular the comp composition level is going to go down. He was thinking on a higher level where it's, okay, well, the average person's going to have access to be able to make this, but he didn't realize that it was going to go even further to the masses to the degree that it has now. Yeah, exactly. Where any kid who picks up a phone um, and 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 installs TikTok is not only a slave to the Chinese communist government, but they are. Um, yeah, just a little joke there. But anyway, <laughs> I gave uh, uh, Comrade G's book five stars on Amazon. You better believe it. So anyway, uh, yeah, yeah, that that'll get you off the hook in five years when our overlords take a listen to this. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so then, then he's asked the question, if music is prophecy, what is rave music prophesizing? A post-corporate heterotopia or a dystopia of cold seduction, quote, a cool hallucinatory culture of special effects personalities moving at warp speed to nowhere. And if that's not TikTok, I don't know what is. <laughs> You're right. It does seem uh, pretty apropos. Yeah, so this this vision of a post-corporate heterotopia has yet to come to fruition. We're definitely in dystopia land here in 2021. Then we move on to this uh, chap section he calls Slave to the Rhythm. And um, he says that most music made on computers sounds awful samey. And then he quotes the granddaddy, Brian Eno, the father of ambient music. Massive, massive influence on techno because of his work with David Bowie and Roxy Music, et cetera, et cetera. Eno, by the late 90s, had become totally disillusioned with, disillusioned with EDM. He said that it shared the failings of Western classical music, which were a hierarchical ranking of instruments in the mix, a rigid sense of pitch, and locked rhythms tied to the conductor slash timekeeper. Eno postulated African music as the alternative, which European and American musicians have been looking to Africa since the late 1800s for musical inspiration, so nothing new here. And it is kind of cool that people have broken this rigid sense of pitch. You know, when they first made synthesizers, they were locked into the box, old well-tempered clavier, and these are the notes, and you can't vary. And now they've got more and more uh, digital instruments that you can vary pitch and get into things like Turkish or Indian music, where you've got all these microtones between the Western notes. But Steph tells me it's time to cue again. What's your second pick? Uh, I went with Plug, which is one of Luke Vibert's uh, uh, alter egos and life of the mind. And I picked this one just to kind of give people an idea of what uh, Simon Reynolds was talking about when he was kind of discussing this this new kind of artistic uh, vision for for jungle or drum and bass that was kind of picked up and, and tried to turn to 11 as far as, you know, uh, how snooty they can make it and how thoughtful they can express it. All right. So plug. 
the life of the mind. that was Plug, The Life of the Mind, aptly named, I would say. And that says we probably do need to speed up through the Sampledelia chapter so we can get to um, fuck dance, let's art. Yeah, I just want to put possible. one little thought on on the idea of how Brian Eno was kind of shit talking, uh, how how computer music all sounds the same. And that definitely is a, a truth to be to be found in what he's saying. You'll find with many digital audio workstations that, that they all do end up sounding samey, either because of the way that the engine uh, kind of outputs info or just because of the instruments and the effects that are built into it. There's, there's a current argument right now that there's a sameness coming out of all the production happening in, in, in production because everybody's kind of using the same tools and it, and it's really washing over everything and giving everything the same kind of sheen. But it really is just a question of, of looking at everything, including these, these programs as instruments in and of themselves. And, you know, a guitar is going to sound like a guitar, just like Cakewalk will often sound like Cakewalk or, or Reason was sounding very much like Reason. Now, at least, you know, back in the day with the way that everything started technology wise, you had a very limited ability to, to mess things around when working uh, on an, on an audio workstation that had like a, a very locked in beat grid. Now they've got swing back in there. See, so don't worry, Brian, you know, we got the African sound back in there. We Thanks to Jay swing into, yeah. Yeah. We got the drums swinging back in there and we've got a lot of, uh, like better, better, better synthesizers and, and better fake instruments that we can call to. So I think that that's been broken out of, but it was definitely probably true in the mid nineties when, you know, you can only do so much and it was all kind of the same kind of thing. Yep. And, and Reynolds points out that even in the late nineties, that there was more high tech going on and say a Celine Dion or Madonna record than in most of these EDM records, which were being made in, in bedroom studios with low level equipment and outmoded machinery, especially the Roland 808 and Roland 909, which have continued to live on into the 21st, the first couple decades of the 21st century. Um, then he gets back into his prog rock thing and spanks people who, who repeat what he calls the mistakes of 70s prog rockers. But I have to say, I think prog rock has survived and it has survived all the hate from the punk rockers and the heavy metal people that were dismissing it. And can, it's carved out its space and continued to go. So, um, you know, I, I think the super binary prog is bad, punk was good thing is is a bit of a dated view of things. But he is right that there were a whole lot of bloated song cycles and, and overblown concept albums, an ostentatious obsession with musicianship and a prissy obsession with production values in the trance and several other scenes which he contrasts with what the truly radical sampledelic artists engaged in in expanding our notion of what music can be about finding new machines and using them in ways that, that weren't intended. Uh, and then he talks about the periodic retreats from the technological cutting edge, which we've talked about over and over again in the last few weeks. 
um, whether it's it's uh, hardcore practitioners suddenly pulling back and making what they called intelligent techno, or the jungle producers who are the descendants of the ones who didn't pull back from hardcore, then pulling back into quote intelligent drum and bass. And yeah, we're it's talking. no different than people out there like discovering the world. They go as far as they can and they pull back a, a bit to the most comfortable land, and then they just kind of settle in there and till the soil. Exactly. Just like the Beatles after the Sgt. Pepper and the White Album took it as far as they could go, pull back to get back and, and get back to the roots and Bob Dylan and the band and all that kind of uh, denim and leather and big beards era, which you don't have to grow beards, I guess, but plenty of people did in the 21st century. And then gets into songs versus soundscapes, the role of engineers as creators, et cetera, et cetera. But anything else you want to touch on before we get to Fuck Dance, Let's Art? No, I think it's a, a pretty good wrap up of, of, of that chapter. Like, uh, again, because he kind of tried to wrap it up in this whole sampladelica uh, concept, uh, you know, that, that's a very that's a very kind of specific thing that he wants to talk about. And I think he does a good job in the chapter. So if you, yeah. if, you know, if you read it, you get the, you get the point. I think we've, we've kind of added as much as we can to it. Uh, fair enough. Fair enough. So let's get back to this this arty um Era. He says, by the end of 1995, a new zone of music making had emerged, a sort of post-rave omni-genre, wherein techno's purity was contaminated by an influx of ideas from jungle, trip-hop, and all over. Not especially danceable, but too restlessly rhythmic and textually startling to be ambient chill-out music. He contrasts it with the intelligent techno that we talked about with Warp Records and others from the early 90s. And says that essentially they kind of forgot the rhythmic aspect in that era and that jungle forced kind of, as he said, put a boot up everybody's arse and forced them to uh, put some funk back in. So this new wave of artsy fartsy guys keep things a bit more rhythmic and startling, even if it's not danceable. The yeah, scenes. they're all kind of keeping it in a in a certain tone or, or tenor at the very least, but they're, they're they're definitely messing with it as much as possible, and finally going outside that that very tight, uncomfortable box of danceability. Yep, yep, and and you know, and we'll talk about the that the pros and cons of being slave to the dance floor. Um, and but these are people who have declared their freedom from the dance floor, and it's scenes at places like uh, the Electronic Lounge, which was a bar and an art gallery at London's Institute for Contemporary Arts. I mean, you if that doesn't say artsy, I don't know what does. Then uh, artist studios like New York Sound Lab or pub basements like London's Rumpus Room, the... <laughs> Charmingly named Rumpus Room, which makes me think of kitty shows I watched when I was a wee tot. Um, and then he's saying that they're playing with the heretical notion that you might get a series of DJs playing different styles of music or even DJs who mixed up genres and tempos in one set. But in this area, the era, these guys he's talking about tended to play a melange of trip hop, easy listening, soundtrack music, mellow drum and bass and nouveau electro. And that the emergence of a new post-rave, post-rap, post-rock perimeter zone occurred. And it's interesting to me that like DJ Shadow is in the trip hop section, but DJ Spooky is in this section. Which back in the day, I think I got my first DJ Shadow and DJ Spooky CDs on the same day in the same record store. So this was a distinction I was oblivious to. Maybe least. sitting in the same categories in the, in the same section of the shop too. I think I think they were, in fact, although I think I grabbed them off the, you know, fancy, hey, this is what the record store clerks are telling you to buy this week section where I tended to, you know, 
be lazy and flock right there and do what I was told. But anyway, let's get to these art techno comps. People like Low Recordings were putting out comps like Extreme Possibilities and United Mutations. Kevin Martin compiled the macro dub inflection. Uh, and Jungle had forced Intelligent Techno to get less anemic rhythmically. I already covered that. But this is a boho scene. This is Bohemians. It's um, not druggy, not a dance scene. There might be a little discreet spliff out, out back after the show or in the middle of the show. But this post-rave experimental fringe was parasitic on drug and dance-driven scenes, hijacking their ideas and giving them an avant-garde twist. And let's take our sponsor break and we come back. Ryan, you're gonna have to answer if that's the case. So Reynolds has thrown down the gauntlet, Ryan. Is this stuff purely parasitic on the innovations of the dance scenes? I mean, when you think about it, uh, name me one kind of subgenre of that intelligent dance music or, or the, uh, or, or what does it call it? Uh, listening, listening, electronic listening music one of those subgenres that ended up feeding back into the dance scene and the dance scene taking up their ideas and incorporating them into a new successful genre. And I can't really, I can't really think of one. The only, the closest that I can come to is, is how you had a lot of kind of ambient trancey Jean-Michel Jarre style sounds that then turned into trance. And this is obviously not what, what Simon Reynolds is talking about here, arrow wise or sound wise, but I think that's as close as you get to uh, a genre that wasn't, you know, designed to be dance music, then being co-opted and turned into dance music, as opposed to on the other side, like that plug track, that's definitely them taking influence from the drum and bass jungle breakbeat scene, and then then trying to chill it out and uh, art it up. Yeah, he calls it jungle by non-junglists for non-junglists, and he cites uh, plug, but also AFX, Witchman, Square Pusher. Says it doesn't match the moods of jungle. It's it's not genteel and smooth rolling like intelligent drum and bass, and it's not menacing and mashed up like the hard stepping sounds um, from the heavier clubs. So, yeah, and I think that's a great point about how how rarely you see this avant-garde stuff feed back into the mainstream. But like he points out, sometimes you get something like Brian Eno and David Burns' uh, Life in the Bush of Ghosts which was a favorite of Hank Shockley of the Bomb Squad, which produced Public Enemy and so many other big hip-hop sounds. So sometimes this stuff does work its way back in. It's also the way like avant-garde compositional ideas became the music we use for horror movie soundtracks. Like they, they were like breaking their brains to break all the rules of music and make stuff that just sounds wrong and makes people uncomfortable. And Hollywood found a very lucrative use for that. <laughs> so now we know when we start hearing these violent discords, uh-oh, somebody's uh, better not go in the basement, you know? Um, anyway, but, but still, this stuff is kind of interesting. And it reminds me a lot of the late psychedelic era in rock when a whole bunch of musicians, people like Van Dyke Parks and Gary Usher and, and uh, the pretty things and all these bands got all this money from record companies to just go in the studios and come back out with good vibrations or Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band, none of which succeeded. And most of it wasn't commercial at all, but some pretty interesting artifacts. And I think some of this stuff is fun to listen to to this day and um, still kind of some fun stuff. But again, I, d I think he's right that it wasn't very world-shaking. 
Yeah, there was there was stuff that I enjoyed and there was stuff that I didn't. I was excited to come back to this because at the time that I was initially checking it out, I was very dance floor driven. And if if a track in the first minute or two didn't sound like something that would move move an audience or fit in with the genre that I was kind of trying to aim to DJ wise, I just wrote it off. So coming back, I was like, okay, time to listen to this with some new ears. And some of it, you know, there there's selections that are good. And then there's other stuff. Uh, Mouse on Mars, I didn't like. Oval, I did not like. There's a 20-minute Oval track that I had to listen to that literally just sounds like the aux cable crackling on and off, and you only hear <laughs> half half the track. And I'm just like, if this is art, then art must die. My kid hated that one, too, for the record. Um, I kind of liked Mouse on Mars, but I, uh, not they weren't my favorite, I have to say. They're a German duo who met in a grocery store arguing over the last bit of muesli. Typical. Um, <laughs> classic. Then discovered that they both made music and they made uh, this uh, this stuff um, as most post-rock as post-tech now. They were influenced by Can, Noi, and the Beach Boys and played with live instruments. Then you've got Luke Bebert. Um, a prime exponent of the post-everything omni-genre, Reynolds calls him. His Wagon Christ Fat Lab, Fat Lab Nightmare was his first one, and then Throbbing Pouch was the second one. And I kind of like Throbbing Pouch. He, Reynolds described it as if you're drowning in the entirety of late 20th century music is flashing before your ears, garbled and grotesquely intermingled, and calls it a cross between Schoenberg and jazz funk, which I think Reynolds was aiming for the nads with that shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think that was said with kind intentions, but um, I actually kind of liked uh, Wagon Christ. Um, yeah, and he goes through a whole bunch. Of, I mean, all the different, uh, he's got a lot of different uh, pseudonyms and a lot of different sounds, and he captures, uh, he, he does it right on, on certain tracks. And it's very hard when I'm picking out track, when I'm picking out tracks to be like, should I pick? You know the track that I like the most from 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 him, or should I pick the the track that's most representative of the of the genre that we're that we're talking about during the chapter? And I usually have to had to overlook like a lot of the the Wagon Christ stuff, which was a lot more composed and a lot more together to kind of show this is the direction that seven out of eleven of the tracks on the CD went into this strange artsy left field direction. Yeah, I mean it's like I can go back and pick a Captain Beef part, Heart or Faust track that almost sound like a pop or rock song, but it's not representative of what the whole Trout Mouse replica or the Faust Tapes albums are like. So yeah, good call on that. Then um, he gets back to Germany with uh, what he calls the Rhizomatic Renegades um, and, and focuses on Berlin's anti-rave scene, which they call digital hardcore. This was a scene that was heavily influenced by Detroit's underground resistance. And as soon as they, I saw that, that perked my ears up because I dig underground resistance and I did end up liking a lot of this Force Inc. stuff. This guy, um, Akin Zapansky, apologies, um, was the label boss. He had multiple labels, Force Inc., Mille Plateau, Riot Beats, <coughs> Chrome. <laughs> you want to say that one better? Uh, what? Uh, Mill Plateau? Yeah, Mill Plateau. You got it. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Um, but the, this guy was very theoretical, super, you know, big reader, reading those fancy books, uh, context-based subversion. The Force Inc. particularly came out in 1991. It was a neo-Detroit Chicago acid sound. They threw a lot of grill parties and had a big impact in Germany when the scene was still underground. And then um, in 92, he makes a radical break that Reynolds says weirdly paralleled the rise of Proto-Jungle in Britain and that he 
ironically loved the Toy Town techno stuff that Prodigy and other people were doing in Britain with the sped up vocals. He saw that as deconstructing the pop vocal and and had theoretical reasons for digging that. Um, but then he was just totally aghast at Rave's popular success in Germany in 93 and 94 and felt that was totally fascist, which I think any good German uh, should be wary of and any good American right now should be very wary of for reasons I'm not going to go into. And then um, he does the compilation album in memoriam of Gilles Deleuze, which was one of his theoretical heroes featuring people like Alec Empire, Rome and Oval. And Oval was one of those groups that some of their stuff was, I thought was pretty interesting, but some of it, yeah, like you said, was just crackling the sound of your he, stereo. He's, he's similar to to Aphex Twin in that you know he could they could make beautiful music and 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 really really straightforward uh, popular stuff, and then they had to go back and dirty it up for cred. Yes, yes, or you know for whatever. I'm not going to speculate on their mo- uh, motivations, but yeah, there there are moments when Opal is is just easy, easy pleasy, but Alex Empire is a bit more interesting, and he's somebody else I was aware of by way of his band Atari Teenage Riot, which was on Grand Royal, the Beastie Boys label in the 90s. And and it was, that was actually the second major label they'd been on. They were on one earlier and got booted before making an album because of high cab fares and breaking amplifiers in the studios. Um, but Alex Empire um, was more varied than that. He made a ton of other stuff, Four Force Inc. And, and, and other labels. Totally interesting character. And... I think Atari's Teenage Riot Speed from 1995 was our next pick. Tell us why you picked it. I just thought it was a perfect uh, crossover between Gabber and Punk. And it's uh, one of those things that you'd expect to see more because those two genres dovetail so well. But it's actually pretty rare that they that someone like just kind of creates an actual Gabber Punk band and goes all in. So I thought uh, Atari Teenage Riot deserves credit for doing it really well. I think so too. And this is Atari Teenage Riot Speed from 1995. And that was Atari Teenage Riot's Speed from 1995. And yeah, Alex Empire is a really interesting uh, dude. And and there was a whole, uh, I, I don't want to call it a manifesto, but sort of a rule of thumb for the digital hardcore scene that they, it wasn't just about speed freak tempos and the brutalist noise aesthetic, as Reynolds calls it. They also had these precepts, which is, are like boost the mid range, cut the bass, tempo changes, keep it exciting. And uh, faceless techno PAs are boring. So they tried to avoid all of those. But Reynolds says ultimately it feels more like rock than rave, that it's the underground lo-fi equivalent to the Prodigy or Chemical Brothers. And we'll be talking about that. We've talked about Prodigy earlier in their hardcore manifestation. We just mentioned them in the techno toy town uh, scene, their song Charlie. But... In the next couple chapters, we'll be talking about the big beat scene, which the Chemical Brothers, the Prodigy 2.0, and Fatboy Slim, among others, managed to make a form of electronic music that went over really big with American rock audiences. And that um, it almost it, fits into this rock rave category. And it's funny because we're talking about Atari Teenage Riot failing to kind of spur on this 
this kind of new genre of, of gabber punk. But then you've got, you know, uh, Junkie XL and all of those guys. Paul Oakenfold was also pushing this new sound, trying to trying to figure out a way to crack and put electronica into people's rock music and alternative music and, and make it happen, you know, with Swordfish soundtrack songs and stuff like that. It just, I don't know, just not doesn't doesn't hold up well. Let me tell you what. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I'm unrepentant. I like that stuff at the time. It was kind of my uh, uh, pacifier baby steps version intro to this stuff. And, and I just listened to some fat boy slim the other day. And oh it. yeah. The, the big beat, the big beat's great, but the stuff that uh, kind of pushes too far in and starts having, you know, uh, Oh, the, with, with featuring vocals from Jane's addiction and stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, oh, okay. Yeah. 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 It starts okay. to get to be a bit too much. It does. It does. It, it's and it's and, that, and that's the kind of thing that Reynolds is complaining about with this omni post everything omni genre is that once you break all the walls down, everything sort of turns into mush and everything starts to get really samey. And that brings us to his section, which he calls "You Make Me Feel Mighty Unreal," focusing on DJ Spooky, real name Paul D. Miller who started out on college radio at a show called Dr. Seuss's Eclectic Jungle. Warning sign right there in his first show with that eclectic. Then he played DJ at Club Retaliation in D.C., um, moved up to New York City, played spaces like Cherusco, Jupiter, Abstract, and the Sound Lab, ultimately fixated on a sound he called Ilbient, um, which was kind of audio sculptures and environmental soundscapes, an uneasy merger of post-rave ambient and abstract hip-hop. And by abstract hip-hop, it means no rapping. And again, it's interesting to me that DJ Shadow gets put in the trip-hop section and gets a, basically a thumbs-up, whereas DJ Spooky, he's kind of um, basically takes him out to the woodshed and spanks him for being a naughty, naughty boy. A naughty intellectual who's trying to, uh, to do a bohemian thing. With this uh, down and down and down in the dirt proletariat music, exactly. And so, um, and maybe I mean I, I don't know. Maybe Reynolds is right. I don't know that DJ Spooky has had the legs DJ Shadow has had, but um, I dug him at the time, and still when I went back and listened to him, I quite enjoyed it. And then, but then he gets into this whole thing. He says, you know, Reynolds, I'm talking about, says in purest or hardcore dance genres, sparks fly from the productive friction between innovation and conservatism, between the auteur's impulse to fly and the dance floor's requirements. And the audience has contradictory demands. The music must be fresh, but must also reinforce and sustain tradition. And that's the whole balancing act of pop music. I mean, somebody like the Beatles was so impactful in the 60s because they took a lot of the pop tropes of the old great american songbook of gershwin and irving berlin and all the fancy chords tied it to that 4-4 time of rock and roll and the harmonies of motown and electric guitars and boom you've got the biggest pop culture phenomenon of the 20th century and you know everybody else is kind of playing that same game if they're playing the pop game or the dance game if you're trying to please crowds People don't want to hear the same crap they heard six weeks ago or two weeks ago. They want to hear what's fresh and what's new. At the same time, they don't want to have to learn a whole new dance. They don't want to have to learn a whole new harmonic pattern. They want to, they want it to be familiar enough so that they can sing it after a couple of choruses or get out there and jump in and dance to it as soon as the beat starts up. And this is, again, where the DJ comes in handy because he plays the role as the tastemaker, who is somebody with a, a level of popularity that's capable of saying, this is the future. This is what you, what is going to be cool. So you better get with it. 
and, and come to it. Otherwise, you'll be left behind. Exactly. And again, that's where I think Reynolds has a little bit of a raucous blind spot. And I mean, since, you know, this is a classic uh, in the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king because I was totally raucous and totally blind, all this stuff. So I can't be knocking Reynolds for being decades ahead of me on this stuff. But nonetheless, after reading Brewster and Broughton and really kind of getting more of a handle and also listening to a lot of DJ sets, I really have come to believe, and I'm sure this is no shock to most of the listeners who've lived this, this music only comes alive when you hear it played by a DJ. I really don't think that you can make a playlist of just tracks and get the same kind of experience. Obviously, the dance floor with the big sound system and the shared experience and the drugs and the light show is the ideal. But I think for home listening, a DJ set, even 20 years old, is so much more powerful than a playlist of producer tracks. Yeah, and it's one of those areas that that Spotify really falls short on is that there's such a a limited amount. I mean, trance guys do it a little bit better. A lot of the the trance compilations and trance mixes are coming out officially through Spotify and 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 lining them all up in a mixed fashion, but for the most part, you know, dance music is just sitting there single tracks with the one and a half minute intro and outro for the DJ and then People are wondering why it's not really catching people's imaginations like it would if you were able to maybe have a section for mixes the same way they do for for podcasts. Not like they did that well either, but no, know, that's, a, um, that's a whole other discussion. That is a whole other discussion. Although SoundCloud and MixCloud, I think, do a much better job, and YouTube as well, of, of preserving DJ sets. And I mean, just to me, hearing any of the Belleville 3 or the Belleville 4, if you include a Flash, is it Flash Eddie or Fast Eddie folks that they booted out? But any of those guys, when you hear them actually DJing, the stuff really comes alive and it's a lot more eclectic than just this, you know, platonic ideal of techno because they're throwing in house and they're throwing in hip house and they're, and they're just a lot more, there's just a lot more to them than just the tracks they produce. So, yeah, I mean, and I think that, Somebody like DJ Spooky, who was actually a DJ, even if he quickly moved to being a DJ in these artsy spaces, rather than somebody who's purely a bedroom producer like Mouse on Mars, I think that that the DJ is always going to have an advantage just because they're filling the role of the old school conductor or band leader where they're the one watching the musicians and watching the crowd and seeing how the one is impacting the other. So, you know. Um, I think that's an important distinction that Reynolds minimizes a bit. I think he knows it intellectually, but I think I think it's just habits of of listening and everything else um, drive him back into that focus on the producer and the track. But let's hear our final track. This is DJ Spooky's Thoughts Like Rain. Why'd you pick this one? Ah, I mean, just kind of like what you were saying, where a DJ has the advantage of, of, of kind of thinking about the the end listener more. This track is really weird. I didn't want to pick one of DJ Spooky's most popular tracks. This is more representative of how out there he gets. But when you listen to it, it it's got a real sonic, uh, a real sonic landscape that you can kind of sit in and 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 enjoy. So I figured it was a, it was a good mix between his stuff that was just you know like nothing but record fizz and 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 this stuff that was a more put together funk track. This here kind of takes you into more of a soundscape. So it's the happy medium. DJ Spooky's Thoughts Like Rain.
And that was DJ Spooky's Thoughts Like Rain. Anything more about DJ Spooky specifically we need to cover? Do you think we've gotten where he came from and what he did? Yeah, I think I think that's it. All right, check DJ Spooky off the list. Um, then Reynolds gets into this whole thing about how hardcore underground scenes like Jungle or Gabba are populist, but seldom more than semi-popular. And if they are the margins around a collapsed center, then post everything is marginal to the margins. I mean, Reynolds is really just taking him out to the curb and stomping him right in the head. I mean, it's just put, putting them in a certain place where it can either be cool or uncool, depending on what's cool in the moment. You know, these and and these these subgenres continue to exist because of that hard underground center that that refuses to die regardless of, of what the tastes of today are and then all of a sudden there's a remix that comes out or again one of those dreaded tiktok remixes and all of a sudden happy hardcore is back up in the charts baby <laughs> i wonder if mouse on mars maybe is going to have a tiktok moment wouldn't that be something or oval huh huh maybe maybe of, of uh cds scratching uh, might might catch on in a big way with the next generation we don't know maybe the chinese government will decide to push that You'll have to get out your dance moves, dust them off, and and get to get working. <laughs> and you know I've got them. I've got them all in my closet, just ready to get out. Um, and then, you know, his big his big summary is that meaning in music comes only when a community takes a sound and makes it part of a way of life. I think that's a little harsh. I think there's definitely more meaning to music when a community takes a sound and makes it their own and builds a community around it, but I think a few dorks in their bedrooms trading sound files across the internet, that's a community too. Am I wrong? No, absolutely. I mean, uh, at least for me, music is such a solitary thing 90% of the time. And I, I've been fortunate enough to be able to express a lot of it out in public in front of hundreds of people and uh, DJing and, 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 and putting on parties and stuff like that. But even for me, the amount of time I've just spent with headphones on listening to stuff that no one else likes. <laughs> and, and, and it's one of those things where you say, does that not have meaning? And God knows, sometimes I feel like it doesn't, but it does. Yes. Yes, I think I think we can agree that our lonely little sonic explorations have some meaning, if only to ourselves and maybe each other. Um, and then to get back to Reynolds' whole thing about the um, songs versus soundscapes, where where he he's spanking techno artists for using the quote seemingly inappropriate language of traditional humanist art. God forbid that they be humanist, right? Um, terms like expression, soul, authenticity, and depth. Reynolds is saying, is this a false consciousness? Um, or is there a time lag here where the di the discourse is not keeping up with the technology? And this to me is kind of a thing where you've got a bunch of theorists who've read all these fancy graduate school books trying to describe what people who barely finished high school are making. Um, and then being aghast when the people who barely finished high school sort of pick up on this middle brow terminology from way back when and try to express what they're doing using that set uh, rather than this cutting edge, you know, deconstructionist um, hip at the time rhetoric, although it's still quite popular today, I must say. And he also says that the industry has this need for genius auteurs and stars rather than collective scenes that the record industry can't do much with white label 12 inches coming out of nowhere from nobody, that they need somebody like Goldie who can be the face and be a star that then they can sell. Um, 
But he also thinks it's a, a defensive attempt to contradict critics who see electronic dance music as cold and inhuman music. Um, and this is an interesting point that I, I hadn't really thought about before, but it's apparently objectively true that the material with which the techno auteur works, mainly timbre and texture and rhythm and space, are precisely those ignored by rock critics and the hardest to remember that when you listen to a track that's mostly about rhythm and timbre, it's very hard to remember long after what exactly they were doing, whereas pitch, melody, lyrics, that kind of stuff is easier to remember. And, and, he, and he does, um, there is a delightful section where he trashes rock critics and their obsession with lyrical meaning, which I've always thought totally missed the point. I mean, who's listening to a Stooges record for the lyrics? Like, you know, it's like, go back to your Bruce Springsteen chatterhead and shut the fuck up. It's about the timbre. It's about the sound. It's about the, you know, this frenzied guitar sound and these crazy drums, not some post-grad statement that Iggy Stooge is making. And well, you get the feeling like guys like Aphex Twin had the mashed potatoes song or, or the Milkman's Wife's tits, tits song uh, simply so that people would have something to write about in the reviews and and, and be able to quote the lyrics. <laughs> and it worked. It worked. It, it was it in did. Simon Reynolds' chapter. He mentioned both of those. He did. And so you got it. Sometimes you just got to cling on to like the lyrics, no matter how absurd they may be. Sometimes and, because they're that absurd. And I think that Mr. James was um, pranking the critics doing that. I, I guarantee you he knew they were going to fixate on those stupid lyrics. And it was just like John Lennon you know, taking schoolyard rhymes like Dead Dog's Eyeball and turning it into Eye on the Walrus, you know, kind of daring critics to humiliate themselves by taking this stuff seriously. Which, of course, I take it very seriously as a critic, but but nonetheless, it's funny to see people getting um, pranked, baited, taking the bait, taking the troll bait, and, and, and getting worked like that. So, I don't know. Final thoughts on Sample Delia and Fuck Dance, Let's Art? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's kind of it's a nice little add on to what you just said is that, you know, when you try to take music and you try to appreciate it as art, you try to recontextualize it in certain ways and some ways work and some ways don't. And in the end, you know, for the most part, it's just like weird individual opinions of things. And it really only matters what the, what everybody is individually hearing, not what uh, you know what they think about it is is their own business. I I have to agree. I have to agree. And so next time, I I don't know. Are we going to do in our angelhood as a dedicated chapter? Or are we going to compress that into uh, into a talk about Big Beat as well? Uh, it might be a little bit of whiplash, but you know I'm prepared. Okay, well, well, we'll see what we go. I've got a book coming in the mail from the late '90s about Big Beat, so I want to, I want to, um, maybe uh, if I, we might delay. We'll see, but but we'll be back to get spiritual with Simon Reynolds when we continue our journey through his book Energy Flash: A Journey Through Rave Music and Dance Culture. And for Ryan Harkness, I'm Nate Wilcox, and thanks for listening. Follow the Letter Roll Podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate and Ryan will be back to Big Beat, the popular scene that launched the Chemical Brothers, Fatboy Slim, and The Prodigy into mainstream international success. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 